From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, is the finance sector equipped to take on climate change? Salesforce strikes a balance on green energy and green buildings. How to be a successful ex-CSO. And how haagen plans to protect pollinators. We were the bee's knees this week on 350. It's March 10th, 2017. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower. With me is senior writer Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello. From New Jersey. <laughs> New Jersey. How's your week been? My week has been excellent. Thank you. Uh, we should note that uh, you're, you've stepped up in some significant ways in the uh, maternity leave absence of managing editor Elsa Wenzel, who uh, uh, not that long ago was the uh, proud mother of a lovely young girl named Rosie, and uh, we're the proud, uh, not owner, but... Uh, Godparents. Uh, 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 yeah, I guess. No, I was going to say we're the proud beneficiary of, of a lovely young woman named Heather Clancy stepping in and helping uh, us run the editorial side during Elsa's absence. So thank you for all that you're doing in addition to, to the writing and the great stuff that you do, Heather. Really appreciate it. Great to be more involved. Okay, so Joel, you were in Anaheim. What were you doing there? We're going to Disneyland. No, that's not true. Um, I was hosting a really interesting event uh, this week. Uh, it was called Climate Day, and it was part of uh, a really big uh, show called the uh, uh, Natural Products Expo, or Expo West, I think is the, is the correct name of this one. They do one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast every year. And this event uh, was the launch of uh, the natural products industry. So think of everything that's sold in a Whole Foods times 20 different companies selling each of those things. Um, the, the industry coming together to, to look at what they can do individually and collectively on climate change and to create a, a mechanism, they call it the Climate Collaborative, uh, to get companies... Uh, not just thinking about it, but acting on it and um, and s- signing on to a set of commitments. So, uh, for, first of all, I got to ask you, what can you tell me? Give me an example of a natural product. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good question. I mean, first of all, well, as I said, think of what's what's sold in in, in let's say Whole Foods uh, or any of your uh, local independent. Uh, uh, organic groceries or natural products companies you know it's everything from from produce to all the canned goods and frozen goods that you can see that you can find these days that are uh, you know or either organic or uh, uh, you know meat free or uh, you know just naturally Mm -hmm. sourced Mm -hmm. in some ways as well uh, as all the personal care products that fall into that category, that, got it. Uh, okay, and and, and 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 health, you know, healthcare kinds of things, uh, the holistic medicine. It's really quite. I mean, it's it's. They have thirty one hundred booths, just vendors. Wow. In this okay. in this show flow, it's massive. It's it takes so over it's like Anaheim. Bigger. It's like bigger than organics. Kind of a different um, sort of a broadening, sort of a mainstreaming of the word, maybe. Or I mean, like. 
organics were big there, I assume. But yeah, organics is a subset. Not everything okay. that's a natural product is organic, um, but organic certainly. Okay. So, so it's a, it's, a, it's a lot of things. And what's interesting about this industry is you would think that, given the nature of the products, that they would be, you know, out there, up uh, out front on on climate and so many other mm -hmm. issues. Um, and the reality is, is like so many industries, there's some leaders, uh, many leaders and proactive companies that are you know, passionate and committed, but there are hundreds or maybe even thousands of companies that are still just, you know, getting going or, or doing a few things here on packaging, for example, mm -hmm. or energy efficiency, but not really stepping up in a big way. And so the, this uh, day that I hosted as a whole series of speakers and uh, ending with Paul Hawken as the keynote at the end of the day. Uh, was geared towards you know, creating this new community and actually getting them to make one of a set of nine commitments. And at one point during the event, uh, they they went around the room and people said, oh, "We're committing to four of the nine things, or eight of the nine things, or uh -huh. these two or three. And so it was, you can see that there's something going on there. Okay, so give me an example. What kinds of commitments are these companies going to make? Well, one of them has to do with integrating carbon farming into the agricultural supply chain. So this is a method, hmm. method of farming that that actually uh, not only has fewer inputs and fertilizers and pesticides, but actually helps sequester carbon into mm -hmm. the soil while making the soil healthier and, and therefore, and also at the same time, re reducing climate impacts. Um, food waste is a is a huge uh, problem in the world, and it's a significant impact that this sector has. Um, looking at uh, removing commodity-driven deforestation from their supply chains, because so things like soy and palm oil and and many other things are sourced um, tropical. Uh, areas that where they're cutting down forests, and then a lot of things you would expect around packaging, renewable power, uh, the reducing the climate impacts of transportation. Uh, so, and then engaging in climate policy. So, it's, it, some of it's things that a lot of industries are doing, and some of them are obviously very much focused on the agricultural nature of of this industry. Hmm. How do you th quickly do you think we'll see action, and who's going to lead here? Well, a lot of the companies are already leading. And so, you know, Gary Hirschberg from Stonyfield Farm was one of the panelists. And he's been at this for, I have to say, 40 years since the, since the right. mid-70s. And, you know, and, 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 and Seth Goldman, who created Honest Tea, and a number of other companies. Uh, Guayaki is a you know, drink and Numi Tea. I mean, there's just on and on. There's dozens and dozens of these things. Um, but it was a really successful day. And I think it's off to the start of something here. And I... I uh, spoke briefly with one of the organizers, my good friend Nancy Hirschberg, who's actually Gary Hirschberg's sister and was for years the head of sustainability at Stonyfield Farm, uh, now in a, a private consultant. And she's one of the driving forces behind this new climate collaborative. And so at the end of this long day of very successful, you know, four or 500 people in the room, another 1,500 or so online, I asked her to talk a little bit about the goal here and, and how she felt about how things went. So Nancy, first of all, congratulations on your first climate day. Uh, it's it's over. Um, first of all, what why did you do this? What led to your wanting to do this in the first place? It, it started um, when Paris Treaty was being signed, 
and um, a few of us in the natural products industry were talking and saying that all we're hearing about are these massive com companies, and yet our consumers in the natural products industry are the ones who are really passionate about this, and why don't we see more action happening here? And so we said, well, what can we do to catalyze bold action? And so that's where the whole idea of the collaborative started. And a year ago, we brought the idea to a bunch of leading um, CEOs, and they said, sounds great, we're ready thumbs up and we began the planning process and had the launch today so pretty exciting so what's the goal what are you hoping the climate collaborative will achieve well in addition to specifically getting 1000 of the natural products companies to make commitments ultimately what's really going to change things for climate is increasing political will and that means we have to change the environment of silence. And that means engaging the companies, um, pushing it out to our consumers, but also many innovations start in natural products. So antibiotic-free, organic, fair trade, non-GMO, so many of those things start here and then are adopted by the larger food industry. And so we're really hoping to just build on so many efforts that are happening with NGOs and so forth on the momentum of consumers who are embracing climate and want climate action. That's, I think, why we had such a huge success today is because people are ready. We, every company we went to is like, thank you so much. We want to do something. We just don't know what to do. So you came up with a series of nine commitments, um, and we'll link to those uh, on the website. Where did those come from? How were those, uh, why those nine? Yeah. A big influence for us was We Mean Business, they, and they have been so helpful, incredible. Um, so we looked at the process that they had, which is basically essentially asking companies to make a commitment, a public commitment, is an important step in behavior change. So the nine came from, we have been doing LCAs and carbon footprinting for decades. We know where the impact is. We know where the opportunity is. And um, so we developed those nine. Now I will say, you know, having connected with Paul Hawken and his work on Project Drawdown, we're totally open to expanding those. For instance, one of the key concepts that he came up with um, or in areas that he said are very impactful is um, educating girls and family planning. That's not on our list. So we'll certainly go back and look at maybe that needs to be on our list. What can companies do to help in that area? So, um, but essentially it came from um, years of knowing, understanding impact, where our impact and opportunity is. So you had a great turnout today, both in the room and online. How will you know if this is successful? Oh, that's a really, um, I think already we've seen um, discussions happening at the board level. That, when I go to a, you know, 11, $4 billion company and talk to them about this and see that they are talking about it at the board level, I already feel we've been successful. So the key for us will be to see how this is embraced by the leadership and the company's executives and um, and whether or not they resource behind it. And whether next year when we go to give awards and shine lights, light on the best practices, if there really are people doing innovative things and really pushing the envelope and things that can be scaled up. Well, it seemed like a really engaged audience and a really great turnout over uh, 1,500 people online, probably three, four, 500 in the room. Um, so congratulations on that. You're already, you're already thinking about uh, Climate Day 18, right? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about my vacation next week. Uh, no, it, it's super exciting, and I, I think um, the engagement was absolutely stunning through every single presentation, watching people, taking pictures, just completely paying attention, sticking around after talking. There is People are ready. The, the time is now, and I, I'm, it's, it's an exciting time.
Great. Thanks, Nancy. Thank you, Joel. Well, this week we kicked off with the introduction of another in our uh, editors at large that are part of the Green Biz uh, uh, family. We've we've had David Crane and uh, Bob Langert for X McDonald's uh, writing a regular series of provocative posts, and now comes Catherine Winkler, who is the former head of sustainability at a at large tech firm called EMC, and. Uh, left that position uh, last year after being in that field for, for years and years. And just one of the most thoughtful um, and, and very candid, I think, um, forthcoming uh, people in the field, uh, who actually happens to be a good writer as well. So she wrote a piece this week called How to Be a Successful Ex. CSO, Chief Sustainability Officer, which is actually what her goal is right now, what her journey is now that she's left the corporate world, but still has a lot of interest and passion and energy around how can I make a difference in the world, uh, just sort of what that journey is. And she's going to be writing about that uh, for us over the coming months and maybe years. Yeah, I really found her her take on rethinking her her quote retirement end quote <laughs> after the event, the election last year. I it was clear that um, she's got a lot of visceral stuff going on, right? Thinking about the, the next path, and it sure isn't easy. So I'm looking forward to hearing what she's got to say. She she had an amazing um, role at EMC and, and as a as a techie, um, I I was fascinated by what she was able to accomplish there. And it's interesting when you think about, you know, first of all, there's the path of how does one become a chief sustainability officer in a large company? That's a conversation that we hear a lot. Um, and not to mention, how do you be a successful CSO in, in a large company? But this is what she says. She says that there's no standard post-CSO career path. You know, there's right. no, you know once you've been there and, and, it's, and for whatever reason, by, by choice mm-hmm. or necessity, it's time to go. Where do you go from there? And I think that's an interesting perspective. And and there are quite a number of ex-CSOs out there. Some of them write for us. Uh, Leo Rowdy uh, wrote a piece this week. He was the mm-hmm. ex-sustainability uh, executive at, at Best Buy. Um, and and it's an interesting area because there are just a lot of people who have been there, done that, and they, you can be a consultant. You can do, well, I don't know what you can do. And this is the part of what uh, Catherine's finding out. So we'll be looking forward to that. And as you said, uh, following her path and her journey over the coming weeks, months. And I personally would would sure love to see some of those ex-CSOs bring their expertise at the board level to to companies. Um, What an amazing resource, if you think about it. Some, Some smart companies should be looking at that. Um, I, you mentioned Leo and I, I, Joel, one of the, the pieces that really compelled me this week was Leo's piece, latest piece on, uh, why coal country must be part of the clean economy. So obviously a pretty, um, you know, compelling headline. Everyone's coal has been on everyone's lips since again, last November, actually before then, but, um, I thought this was a really compelling piece because it um, he takes a really thoughtful look at you know certainly the case for for corporates to invest in renewables, but he also kind of kind of dings the, the the corporate world for not um, being close enough to the impact of that, like the social impact of that. 
and and really not paying enough. Um, I love the, the the speed of adoption of renewables is creating social externalities that aren't factored into the corporate renewables equations. Communities that have depended on the fossil fuel economy for decades, particularly in coal country, are suffering. And I, you know, I I think we we sometimes forget about that. And and I believe that what I really appreciate about this piece was just sort of the, hey, you know, you're doing the right thing. You companies are making the right investments. You're, you're, you're leading, but you need to remember the impact, the social impact. So I, I, I thought, you know, nice reality check, you know, be more thoughtful, be more sensitive. Yeah. And as you said, if you're a CEO, CFO or CSO, and you're not thinking about the costs here, you should be because this is, because if you're not, it's it's going to be bad for business, and it's, and it's ultimately going to be bad for democracy. Speaking of financial impacts and costs, we had a piece out of the UK from Michael Holder. Is the finance sector really equipped to assess climate risk? This is an issue we've been looking at for a long time with groups like the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, SASBE, and others that have come to the fore that are looking at, well, how do we account for uh, the costs of climate and um, and start to to internalize some of those externalities, um, and uh, he has a very thoughtful piece on 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 how uh, the the financial community needs to be doing this. And and we've seen uh, just a growing drumbeat of, of on this topic uh, earlier this year. Actually, it was late last year. Something called the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, TCFD. Somehow they got a four-letter acronym out of a seven-word uh, <laughs> title. Um, came out with a bunch of recommendations uh, on, on what is the obligation of, of financial institutions to provide information to investors, lenders, insurers, and other stakeholders about the physical liability and transition risk associated with climate change and to lay out some financial disclosures across a number of industries. Um, if, if you haven't seen the uh, TCFD, it's actually FSB, which is the Financial Standards Board, hyphen tcfd.org. We'll link to that on the webpage for this, for this uh, week's edition of, of Green Biz 350. But this is just a really important topic, and it's one of those things behind the scenes, and it's not about politics, it's not about uh, renewables versus coal. It's, it's just about making sure that the financial institutions that undergird the global economy mm-hmm. are, are measuring and managing the, the assets and the risks uh, associated with, with climate change and green investments uh, appropriately. Yeah, and a lot of it comes down to, by the way, financial services industry has like more acronyms than the tech industry, and I thought the tech industry was bad. Well, then there's um, the military, which is the worst yeah, of all, but they're in but, the middle. But, yeah. you know, it's funny, as a as a business journalist, uh, you know, I mean, it comes down to the, the age-old disconnect, if you will, of the... The, the window of research analysts, which is like, what, three to five years, and the window of the real risks here, which is longer. So many of these people just aren't, they're just not seeing them because they're not looking that, they're not looking as far ahead as some of these risks, you know, suggest they really need to be. So it's, um, it's not like, it's just a, a habit and a, and a, and a practice. It's been in place for a long time and it needs to, the window needs to be extended, if you will. Yeah. And as, as, um, Michael Holder points out in this report, um, you know, these are, 
pension funds and insurers are looking at long-term liabilities of 20 years or more, but they're managing assets that are far more short-term in their thinking, and they're, in fact, they're mm -hmm. turning over their portfolios every 21 months on average. And so there's a disconnect there about how do you invest for the long-term and, 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 and you know, thinking about short-term return um, at the same time, and, and what is the impact of climate change in all of this. This is going to be a really important story to watch. It's not going to be uh, in the daily news unless it all of a sudden really starts to hit the fan. Uh, but we will be watching this because this is going to impact uh, the kinds of investments, uh, kinds of loans comp companies can get, the kind of investments that will be backed by insurers. And, and really, uh, it's another place, as we've talked about on this show in the past, where sustainability and the risk management parts of companies come together. So more to come on that. a lot of buzz about bees lately, specifically the role of pollinators in agriculture and so many of the other things that industry relies upon uh, to produce the, the, the raw materials, the goods and services that ultimately go into the products that we all buy. Our uh, associate editor, Anya Hollemeiser, recently came back from a great farm tour sponsored by, of all companies, haagen to look at pollinators. Anya, welcome. Hi, Joel. It's great to be back on the podcast. So I took a very interesting trip down to Chowchilla, California, which is in the Central Valley. And I was uh, I was there with haagen uh, Nestle, and the Xerces Society, which is a nonprofit that um, makes sure pollinators and other invertebrates are healthy so that they can support our agriculture system. So there's been a lot of talk about and uh, about the bee populations declining in, uh, in, in recent years. And haagen wanted to showed uh, some journalists the actual almond farms to sweeten the deal. Uh, sweeten the deal. I like that. So you said uh, pollinators, other invertebrates. Is this just about bees or is this about other critters as well? The Xerces Society is a nonprofit that ensures the health of all invertebrate species because bees are not the only uh, pollinators out there, but this tour was specifically focused on bees and their role in the agricultural ecosystem. So talk about the tour. What did you do? What did you see? Where would you go? So we went down to the almond farms, which uh, Andy Plajek, who is the brand manager for Hagen Dawes, described as looking like an entire snowstorm full of flowers, and it really did. Um, so it's a great image. It is a beautiful image, and this week's story had some images and, and photos of the of the beautiful almond farm. And along with the almond plants themselves, what Hagen Dawes did was plant 6.5 miles of hedgerow along the side of the farm. What hedgerow does is protects the food source for bees so that when the plants and the almonds are not in bloom, they have a diverse and uh, a, a diverse year-round source of food and nectar. So a, a, it's a hedgerow, and is, is this is just a, a physically, what does this look like? Is this just a row of <laughs> hedges? Right now, it doesn't look like much because they're they're planting it. Um, we actually got to plant some, some hedgerows ourselves. It's basically going to look like a small, a short um, row of hedges that are flowering, and those will be flowering year-round, unlike the almonds. So what's the role that bees play in all this? What's the role in, in, let's start with California and the agriculture there. 
There are 20,000 different kinds of bees. 1,600 of those bees reside in California. What's quite interesting is that most of those bees are actually not social. They live in holes in the ground. So there's a lot the public does not know about bees. There's a lot that even brands don't know about bees, although they're completely reliant upon them. If you're, for example, Haagen-Dazs, which is a brand that uh, has ice cream with almonds, with berries, all of that. I think we all know what Haagen-Dazs does, but yeah. If you're an unfortunate person who does not, <laughs> uh, a lot actually, Hagen does sources ninety percent of its almonds from the farm that we went to. So why was Hagen does taking you and everybody else on this tour? So Hagen does, along with uh, with Nestle, which is its its parent brand, has been doing a lot of work to preserve to preserve bee populations. Like I mentioned, all of its almonds come from this one farm in California, and it's deeply tied to the ecological issues that affect bees. Um, bees bee public populations have been declining since 2007. At least the public has known about this, and there's a huge disconnect between brands and farmers. What I learned was that farmers are actually very risk averse when it comes to taking steps to do new things that might preserve the sustainability of certain crops. They are dependent upon that year's crops. They're dependent upon the the traditional methods that they use that have been working for, for, for decades, which might not be working anymore to preserve, to preserve bee species. For example, planting these hedgerows, which is a huge investment. And on the other hand, you have these brands who have they might have the data and the vision for a sustainability plan for their products, and they don't know how to talk to the farmers in a way that will encourage them to come to a common consensus. So that's where you have a nonprofit like Xerxes Society, which brings them together so that real changes can be made. Here is Alex Plaschek, Senior Brand Manager at Nestle and Haagen-Dazs, um, talking about Haagen-Dazs' relationship with pollinators. Well, about one-third of all of the Haagen-Dazs flavors require a bee to have those ingredients. So one of our most popular flavors is Haagen-Dazs Vanilla Milk Almond Bars. Those great chocolate-covered uh, almond and vanilla ice cream bars. And we wouldn't have those if we didn't have bees. And so Haagen-Dazs is really focused on having a deep respect for where our ingredients come from. And it brings us all the way here to Central California. We started the Haagen-Dazs Loves Honey Bees campaign in 2008. And ever since then, we've been really focused on the plight of the honeybee. And this is a new project to, to augment that, where we are um, planting sustainable habitats on the farms that grow our ingredients. And so on this farm, we planted a hedge that's six and a half miles long to surround the entire farm so that bees and butterflies and other native pollinators have a place to live and a source of food year-round. So talk a little bit about the, the partnership between Haagen-Dazs, Nestle Haagen-Dazs, and Xerces Society. What's the partnership there and why is that an important part of this story? Xerces Society is a name that many people may not have heard of, but they work with huge brands like Haagen-Dazs. They also work with General Mills recently on preserving bee populations. So the, the importance of 
this partnership is the communication. I spoke with uh, I spoke with the lead beekeeper at Harris Farms who said that he's been working since the 1970s, so he knows the ins and outs of of the colonies. And he said that when he started uh, beekeeping, we were seated next to each other at lunch, and I'm pretty sure I was seated next to the most interesting person there. But uh, he so he was saying that um, said that if you lost five percent of your of your colonies that year in the 1970s, that was a pretty big loss. But right now, if you are a beekeeper who's losing 15%, uh, that's really great. You know, he's expecting a 30% loss of colonies. So he needs to figure out what can be done to preserve the colonies. Hedgerows are one way to make sure that bees are getting a year-round source of food and that different kinds of bees who wouldn't otherwise socialize with each other cross-pollinate. And that cross-pollinization and the interaction of different kinds of bee species with one another, not to get political here, but it's also just nature. If you have different uh, different colonies of bees from different places interacting with one another, it actually ensures the health of these of these animals, right? And so there is a big role for, for companies, brands, and nonprofits to work together on this issue. And here's Keith Kwan of Harris Farms talking about it. You know, when you have essentially all your eggs in one basket, your yearly crop becomes your kind of your baby. Um, and for a lot of the farming operations out here, things take sometimes take a few years for it to really percolate down to your end crop result. Yeah. Um, for example, the drought we just had, a lot of trees, um, even if they got all the water they needed for this year, sometimes take two, three, sometimes even more than that years to recover. So when you have a situation like that, farmers, of course, become very risky because they want to do what's been working in the past. Um, so with that, you know, what's worked in the past is you keep a clean orchard floor, um, you use insecticides, spray down all the different um, growths, all the weeds and other things so that you don't have a habitat for insects and, um, you know, you know, crop eating, um, you know, things like groundhogs. But, you know, in doing that, they also take out a lot of sort of native flowers too. Um, so, you know, you need a collaboration from people to get educated to say that, you know, those flowers have a purpose and a use. Wow, that's interesting, sticky situation. Uh, thanks so much for keeping us in the loop, Associate Editor Anya Hollemeiser. Thank you so much, Joel, and I hope that we can all be more conscious of pollinators. I knew that was coming. <laughs> One issue I cover fairly closely is the evolution of the energy procurement strategy of the big tech companies. So anyone from Microsoft to IBM to, well, in this case, Salesforce. Salesforce.com is one of the most fascinating companies out there. Cloud computing giant, one of the, the biggest ones. And um, they've been doing quite a lot with, with offsetting their footprint and with trying to think think about energy differently. Here to talk about that with me is Lauren Hepler. Hello, Lauren. Welcome. Hi, Heather. How are you doing? I'm good. It's great to have you visiting this week from Thank Berkeley. you. Thank you. Yep, yep. So I, I covered several announcements that, that uh, Salesforce has made in the last year, including one where they said they were going to be like 100%, I think, um, in all their data centers. Um, can you mm-hmm. give us a sense of where they stand today? I, I believe you spoke that they're, they're relatively new Uh, sustainability director? Correct. So I spoke with Patrick Flynn, who's the director of sustainability for Salesforce, about a year into the job Mm, now. mm -hmm. The impetus for the call was sort of um, talking with a company that has sort of put itself out in front on renewables and and bringing new projects online in places you might not necessarily think of, like West Virginia and Texas, big wind projects to power their data centers, to sort of see what what he's thinking about when it comes to sort of the new energy 
energy landscape that we're all very curious about when it comes to the presidential administration and also sort of state level policy. Um, So we spoke about a a few different things. One of them was sort of the nuts and bolts of how you get these deals done. Obviously, we've talked before on this show about the differences between a power purchase agreement and then the VPPA, the virtual power purchase agreement, which which lets you get a little more flexible in terms of where the energy is coming from. And then we also covered the the realm of green building, which for those of us in the Bay Area um, who maybe travel into San Francisco, you can't miss the big Salesforce tower right. going up downtown. Right. Well, let's stick with data centers for a moment and then let's go to the headquarters. Uh, um, th- one of the things I was really curious about is, you know, I don't believe Salesforce actually owns any of their data centers. They They work with other companies. So did they talk to you about um, how, you know, how they, they pull this off of me. Cause I think a lot of people get hung up on the idea that you have to own the building, right? They don't. Correct. So. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's definitely the case. And the idea for Salesforce is to sort of work within collaboratives to pioneer uh, like best practices for folks who co-locate their data centers. So working with groups like BSR, um, RMI, Rocky Mountain Institute has its business renewable center um, to sort of see what Salesforce as one company working with lease space has been able to do and see if others might be able to replicate that. I, I myself would definitely be curious how those conversations go with a landlord uh, just in terms of getting them to, to front the investment for this sort of thing. Right. Anything that you can say or that he can say about uh, the, the future in the next few months? That was a big topic of discussion. So without further ado, I will kick it to Patrick Flynn, the Director of Sustainability from Salesforce. I think about embedding sustainability throughout the organization. Uh, my team and I work to be in the right place at the right time with the right advice to inform how we think about data center and infrastructure strategy, real estate, employee engagement, working with our customers on their environmental opportunities. And, and so going forward, I think it's this year in particular about reach for us and trying to put in place the systems and the policies to really drive sustainability really drive best practice as instinct or as habit in this organization. And we do so much already. One of the, one of the hardest things is trying to raise the bar even harder when it's already so high here. Um, But in, in, in offices pushing the forefront of health and wellness in the, in the built environment Um, in our infrastructure, really thinking about the, the, Colo provider and tenant relationship and trying to drive change um, in in the regions where we have operations working with our utilities to create new options for renewable energy. Uh, it's really reach um, getting out there and driving best practice for us, but also with an eye towards the many other companies that are out there who have ambitious environmental goals, who may face similar circumstances that we do, and trying to share what we've learned, how we've done it. Um, if we're going to, if we're going to tackle climate change, we need every company, big and small, uh, to be able to meet their ambitious commitments and feel comfortable making big commitments. And that's a place where Salesforce, I think we can innovate. Uh, we can, we can show the way we can lead and, and 
that's what's ahead, I think, emerging as a, as a company that every other environmentally progressive company can look to as a model to follow. And yeah, that big building, that big building in San Francisco, what can you tell me about where, what they're trying to do there? So I think that the big question is how you make sense of this crazy world of building automation and energy efficiency. At this point, there's so many gadgets out there. One of the things I was curious about is sort of how you wade through the noise and figure out what's going to work best for your project. Luckily for Patrick, he's an engineer by training and actually came from the green building world. So here's what he said about figuring it all out. I, I got the sustainability bug working as an HVAC engineer way back when and recognizing how much opportunity there was to design our buildings better. Um, Salesforce is one of the most innovative companies in the world, one of the best places to work. It's got this willingness to do the right thing. And it's one of the things I love most about the company. Now, that in our real estate portfolio manifests itself in terms of wanting to provide spaces that are healthy, inspiring, productive, and efficient. And so we embed sustainability strategies throughout our real estate footprint. Again, for us, often it's a leased office space. And so we think there's an opportunity for us to work with building owners and managers to drive change, but also to do it on our own in terms of our tenant fit out. We've got a really progressive green buildings strategy and playbook. 54% of our employees work in green building certified spaces. We've got a, a huge number of projects in the pipeline right now still to be completed, including, as you mentioned, Salesforce Tower going up across the street from me here, which will be lead platinum. And we think about the, 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 the real forefront of green buildings is not just resource efficient. It's really healthy and thinking about all that goes, it's health, it's wellness, and all the th- many things that go into making a, a space um, really innovative and modern. So anything else you'd like to share, Lauren, before we close this out? Well, there was one interesting thread from this interview that I think definitely um, readers might be seeing a story on in the next few weeks. And that was this idea of aggregated renewable energy deals. So in some cases, you've got a big player like Salesforce or Apple or Google who will come in and invest the kind of money that will allow a renewables project to be built. But what if with all of the mid-sized, smaller companies out there that are sort of curious about the space but don't have a ton of upfront capital, what if they pooled their resources in some sort of joint ownership models? And Heather, I know you were saying this is something you've been curious about for a while. So I think the question now is sort of like, are we getting to a place where both economically and logistically this is actually possible? Yeah, I'm hearing hints. So I guess we'll both have to stay tuned. And uh, Lauren, thanks for dropping by. Thank you. Well, that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more information about the organization, stories and events that we've mentioned in this episode. Thanks to podcast director Soraya Melkonian and to my co-host Heather Clancy. 
You can contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. And we'll see you back here next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. From all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day.